Hi guys, welcome to the latest episode of this unbelievable life. So today I have my friend Molly Welch here. She is one of my favorite Renaissance women. I love her to pieces. Um, she is actually an end of life doula and a green cemeterian. So I have to tell you all, um, this was some of these topics I'd never even heard of till I met Molly. And I'm just so fascinated and inspired by the work that she's doing. I wanted to bring her on today to tell her story. Thank you so much, Nikki. You are an inspirational person, and I'm so glad to see this positive message and podcast being spread um, throughout our area and probably throughout the world. Um, um, my life has been unbelievable. <laughs> um, I'm sure everybody has a unique story to tell, um, but uh, I happen to be um, working in a space that a lot of people don't know about because our country is a very um, death phobic country and it's, it's a place where um, people don't often like to talk about what happens at end of life. We have to Think about those things, though, um, because time is not um, something that can be commodified. It's not something that we can always predict. And um, we want to live life to the fullest for the time that we have. And I think learning about end of life really teaches you about two things that are most important. One is the quality of life that you're living in the present moment, um, meeting people where they are and also um, ensuring that you do the best that you can with the time that you're given and um, engage in that sort of self-care. So um, I think that you'd asked um, us to speak a little bit about what inspired us to um, develop the projects that we have in our, in our own lives and our own careers, what drives us to learn about the things that we learn about. And um, I grew up very close to, um, my ancestors. So my uh, grandparents and great grandparents were around a lot and part of my immediate family. My parents were very active and engaged in my life. And um, I grew up uh, very close to my grandmother and grandfather. They lived half a mile down the road on a homestead farm um, where we all have lived in succession since uh, about 1836 or 1832. And my grandmother was um, into acting. She's a DePaul alum. <laughs> and um, so she was very interested in storytelling. And um, my grandfather was an attorney. That's a different kind of storytelling. My parents were caregivers of animals and plants. Um, so um, growing up within the confines of a family tribal space like that. And then with caregiving people, um, people involved in caring professions, um, the eternal cycle of life, death, rebirth, it, it was all around me for, for many years and um, just at an accelerated rate because <laughs> the lifespan of plants and animals is not quite as extended as the lifespan of people. But even then, um, you know, aging and living and birth and spirituality and even end of life and death, these are not things that I was sheltered from. So um, I often had no fear of companioning 
animals, people, um, loved ones through those processes. And um, so my first job was um, when I was studying to be a writer, Phil, one of my first summer jobs was obituary writing for people at a local family funeral home. And uh, I think this is the space where I learned to meet people where they are, essentially, and to talk with them. Um, when you're speaking with somebody who's grieving, it's a holy experience. When you're speaking to somebody who um, has experienced fresh loss, um, all pretense is gone, and but you wanna make sure you tell that story right and that you memorial that's where the healing journey begins for them and that's where that transitional process starts is is in celebrating a life lived and um so i i was with that group in 1994 95 and um still homesteading on the family farm raising chickens ducks geese <laughs> um cattle uh, sheep, worked as a veterinary technician for 20 years and a practice manager. And um, I've held people's hands through a lot of exciting news, um, you know, exciting journeys. Um, but for every puppy and kitten, there's a, there's a goodbye that occurs. Um, there are senior animals that have lived their lives and um, they have lived them well and have been well loved. And um, about 2020 is when I started thinking about um, how I want Thank to you. live. And how so I want in 2020, I began to suffer from panic and anxiety. And I was facing um, probably what somebody would call a midlife crisis. And my husband, Kim, who was a medical social worker, and I had began to discuss our future. And he had helped me um, walk my grandmother through the end stages, well, to the beginning, middle, and end stages of lung cancer. Um, she had non-squamous cell carcinoma, which is a cancer of the lung that is not brought on by smoking. She never smoked in her life, but she was part of a generation where I'm sure that occurred around her quite a bit. Um, however, um, you know, she was approaching her 90s and she had lived her life well and she wanted to stay at home during her illness. She wanted to keep going to plays for as long as possible. We spent a long time discussing what mattered most to her. And um, one of the most ins inspirational books I've ever read is what uh, is um, called Being Mortal by palliative surgeon Atul Gawande. And it's called Being Mortal and What Matters Most at the End of Life. And in it, he talks about how people in the medical profession and then people outside of the medical profession, because we dance around the topic of and then aging and then transitioning on into uh, death, because we aren't comfortable with the last bit, we often don't consider or discuss what matters most to us. And that is what my job as an end of life doula is. That is what I am supposed to do. I am a death educator and an end of life coach. And my husband was, it was instrumental in helping to teach me a lot about that because of his background in social work. 
Um, so we engaged in a lot of that work and care with my grandmother. And then um, he faced his own medical challenges. And when we would go into the doctor, um, he would really advocate for himself and he helped me to advocate for him as well and um, really partner with medical people instead of um, fearing them or seeing them as the other, which is something that aging people sometimes do because they get overwhelmed with information. Um, so um, we talked about um, the way Americans had begun to view non-COVID related end of life. And we began to research geriatric care management in 2020. And we found about, out about the emerging field of um, end of life doula or death doula work. And um, my program instructor, Suzanne O'Brien, um, is an RN and she has been featured in death doulas used to be rare. The COVID-19 pandemic changed that, which is on Time Magazine's, um, which was in Time Magazine in January, 2022. But um, the end of life doula is a non-medical person who is trained to care for someone holistically, physically, emotionally, and spiritually at the end of life. End of life doulas are also known around the world as end of life coaches, soul midwives, transition guides, death coaches, death doulas, doulas to the dying, uh, midwife, death midwives, thanadoulas, and end-of-life guides. So this unique field is a way to bridge the gap between families, caregiving for the aging, parent, patients diagnosed with life-limiting illnesses or conditions of hospices, nursing facilities, doctors, and home health providers who are all professionals who desperately who are needed desperately to support those approaching end of life, but who also have limited time to engage in death education and to customize care plans sometimes in the home for their patients. So this is through no fault of their own. Most hospice nurses provide excellent and tight symptom management for their patients living at home with progressive diseases. But due to Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement roles, rules, they have a lot of patients to provide care for. And um, the world itself is, the population is aging rapidly. And so sometimes people need more time for that customization, that reassurance and that education so that um, patients can get fully educated and patient families that they serve or, or feel fully supported during what can be a really stressful, emotionally charged and difficult time. So studies have shown that 80% of Americans would prefer to die at home if possible. Despite this, um, the medicalization of death, like the medicalization of birth, has meant that 60% of Americans die in acute care hospitals, 20% in nursing homes, and only 20% at home. Roughly 20% of baby boomers do not have children of their own, but 80% of all people wish to stay in their home as they age. So Kim and I really wanted to be part of that solution. I enrolled in doula givers and had charted a course of study for myself, which included elder care consultation and advanced care planning as well. The plan was for me to join the National End of Life Doula Association, which I did upon graduation and certification. And then Kim, as an MSSW was already fully credentialed really to join the practice once we had a working doula group in order. So this was not to provide, this was also a way to provide a transition to what mattered most to me. And I was beginning to think of time, life and the nature of mortality with an eye that people who've been connected with this life cycle often do. 
um, a family friend, a gentleman who had, who is um, chosen family to my sister and I, he's like an uncle. He moved in with my sister and I as a way to afford better home health care. His condition of primary progressive multiple sclerosis had led to quadriplegia and scheduling home health care workers in 2020 became an extreme struggle due to the pandemic. So a lot of families learned that they needed to learn more about how to um, commit to their aging family members at home. And Kim and I found, he found a totally new career finding further assistance for him. And I helped also part-time with some of this work between um, my day job and online courses and home. Then July 20th of 2020, everything changed for me. I lost my husband. He died of an aortic aneurysm very suddenly and everything came to a screeching halt and at the same time lurched forward at warp speed for me, which is a paradox. It's something that, that, that happened and nobody saw it coming, nobody wanted it to happen. And yet it's just one of those moments that will ever be part, forever be part of my story. And time began to move differently for me. My whole perspective on my life's trajectory my people, my own mortality, all of that shifted. This is the greatest lesson my end-of-life doula instructor, Suzanne O'Brien, says the dying have to teach us. It's all about time. Time is in abundance, and yet there is never enough. The poet Robert Frost said, nothing gold can stay. Death teaches us about time, about life, and what matters most. The best of what we can, the best of what we are, cannot be carefully preserved in physicality, but does it cease to exist? No. As Einstein said, energy cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. It can only be changed from one form to another. And though there is some debate about the infinite or finite measure of matter and energy, we do know that matter in its kinetic state is energy, and the transformation of energy is how our bodies walk on in the activity that doesn't always make people comfortable and then not everybody finds beautiful. And that activity is decomposition. So consider you are comprised of 84 minerals, 23 elements, and eight gallons of water spread across 38 trillion cells. You've been built up from nothing by the spare parts of the earth you have consumed according to a small set of instructions hidden in a double helix small enough to be carried by a wee spermatozoa. <laughs> you are recycled butterflies, plants, rocks, streams, firewood, wolf fur, and shark teeth broken down to their tiniest, smallest parts and rebuilt into one of the planet's most complex living things, Earth. And they, according to Marilyn A. Mendoza, PhD, in death and bereavement among the Lakota in psychology today, in many native cultures, people are not said to have died, but to have walked on. Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist practitioner has stated that, quote, Lakota grief was something to be valued. It brought a person closer to God. For when a person has suffered great loss and was grieving, they were considered most holy. Their prayers were believed to be especially powerful. And others would ask the grievers to pray on their behalf. 
They say there are some people who walk closely alongside death, and those of us who have sometimes greet it as a very painful adversary, and sometimes at other times greet it as an old friend. And I truly feel at times we can hear when the universe speaks to us a little bit more clearly and a little bit more loudly, even if we're coming out of a traumatic experience. That's part of our story. And in our grief, there are times when it feels as if we are walking between worlds with a bird's eye view. I started to learn more about an idea, which intrigued me as far back as 2016, green funeral services, natural death care, and home funeral services. While going through Target <laughs> in 2021, 20, no, it was still 2020. Um, I was just walking through Target and a worker recognized me and she stopped me and she said, hey, you're Molly Gormley. That's a name I haven't had since 2004. So um, I, you know, was racking my brain going, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to know this person. Who is this? Um, and um, I said, yes, I am. And she said, you touched my heart. Over 20 years ago, during my first job in that funeral home, I wrote a eulogy for her mother. I didn't deliver the eulogy. Somebody else was hired to deliver the eulogy. I just spoke with her beforehand. And um, she said I touched her heart and she always remembered my name from then on. And the point wasn't for her to remember my name, but the idea that uh, she felt a sense of peace and healing 20 years later because of that encounter, that that was positively that positively impacted her, positively impacted me. And um, I thought about making a difference and I started thinking about the funeral industry and my husband had a cremation only package because in 2020 in the pandemic, my wishes were that he not receive any invasive body care techniques. The funeral home was great. Um, he, uh, he was, just externally cleaned and dressed and his dearest personal items. It's quite common for older practices, but many of us do not even know how we might advocate for our loved ones to ha be handled during death. And I found myself apologizing over and over again to the funeral home person who was great. She, she was absolutely awesome, but I felt like, I felt uncomfortable. I felt like I should be, um, I should be saying, you know, I want this package, this more elaborate package, or I felt weird for um, advocating for non-invasive body care. And I don't want anyone to ever feel that way again, because, um, you know, they should be remembered the way that they want. And um, he had a locally made urn from Kentucky. It was turned with all kinds of wood. And, um, I think what has happened is with the over-medicalization and hyper-professionalization of the life rite of passage, which is death. What has occurred is that um, death and dying in our values have changed as a society. And it's time to go back a little more and to figure out what matters most over and over again. And as a death care professional, I have most definitely become a natural death care advocate. I became interested in what it might take to start a green cemetery somewhere in Evansville. And I learned about the Conservation Burial Alliance as well. 
The Mid-America College of Funeral Services hosts one green funeral services course every year to certify green burial and funeral professionals. And it was going to begin just one week following my death doula studies. And I happened to find out that week before. Um, I had used my stimulus money to pay for tuition to doula givers and I performed a GoFundMe and half of my tuition was donated by family, friends and local community members interested and seeing a green cemetery effort in Vandenberg County. The US is a death denying and highly, and highly unusual. We are today poisoning our land and running out of room. Conventional death care, which has only really been going on since the late 1860s, early 1870s, is not sustainable. While only half, while only 5% of today's burials are green, about 72% of cemeteries are reporting an increased demand for the practice. According to a survey from the National Funeral Directors Association, in the same survey, almost 54% of Americans said they would consider green burial options. This is what I learned about modern conventional death care and how we became an anomaly as compared with the way the rest of the world or how we historically cared for our dead. And why is modern conventional non-green burial not sustainable? Well, in addition, in addition to running out of viable room for our dead, these are problematic ramifications of embalming in concrete vaults. All cemeteries within the United States right now today take up an estimated 1 million acres of land. 1 million. Buried within these cemeteries are over 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde annually buried. That's equivalent to 1.2 Olympic-sized swimming pools. 115 million tons of casket steel. That's enough to build over 2,000 Empire State Buildings or almost as high as the high-rises of the city of Tokyo in the ground, just under the ground. Lawn cemeteries, which is where conventional burial takes place, have to mow their lawns. And because they have to mow their lawns, they have to require concrete vaults. This is even if they are green hybrid, which is better than, better than conventional, but if they butter dish where they turn the vault over. And right now we have 2.3 billion tons of concrete buried in the ground. Did you know, Nikki, that 2.3 billion tons of concrete is enough to pave a sidewalk to the moon 28 times. That's a fun fact. Um, then there is exotic wood, wooden caskets inside those vaults, right? So as a nation, we have buried 4 million acres of forest wood, 4 million acres of forest wood to contain our dead in casket wood. These are usually exotic hardwoods that are traveling over a great distance to get here. Um, imagine the state of New Jersey covered in forest, or know, know that this amount of wood could have been used to build one third of all the single family homes in Canada. That's 4.6. All that concrete I mentioned early, earlier is enough to supply a swimming pool for each one of those homes. <laughs> so cremation Though, while solving many of the problems just mentioned, undeniably comes with its own ramifications and is realistically only a slightly greener option. And we're talking about flame-based cremation. In North America, we use enough fossil fuels each year um, for flame-based cremation to drive halfway to the sun. And uh, we release 1.74 billion pounds of CO2 emissions. That's 250 pounds per cremation service. 
we release with these emissions mercury, CO2, so carbon dioxide, nitrous sulfide, sulfur dioxide, and other particulate matter, which is inevitably released into the air and the water during the cremation process. The scattering or burial of remains, cremated remains without mitigation, raises the soil pH and provides too much sodium for plants, roots to survive. So a lot of people say they want to be a tree, which that, that is possible, but those remains should be mitigated with a bio urn that helps um, the soil pH stay, stay normal during that process. The ability of green professionals to neutralize this carefully by using tools such as biourns does make the disposition of ashes a way better option than conventional burial. As I said earlier, the universe keeps leading me to many, many people onward with a vested interest in seeing green spaces preserved and also providing an intimate healing experience in death care. I found out that my good friend who founded What Matters Most Evansville, her name is Andrea Lance, um, with Tree of Life Counseling and the Death and Donuts meet and greet, which um, used to occur downtown before the, before the pandemic, um, featured many, social, many grief counselors and social workers who networked together. And um, I, I have learned that there are you know, a lot of professionals in integrated fields who want to see a healing space where people can come together and celebrate their dead by celebrating life and celebrating new growth. And since this journey started, I've been fascinated by how green burial can advance toward conservation burial and how viewing the land as a living thing and reconnecting with it as a sacred space where we memorialize our dead rather than a non-living commodity rich with non-living physical resource. If we, we can memorialize our dead in this way, we can fund our own, provide financial sustainability to a green space is infinitely important to a person for, such as I, because I'm still growing up and I'm still learning in a classified forested area with a conservation easement. And these trees share a 188 year history with myself and my family. In living memory within my 46 years, my maternal grandparents, my great grandmother, my husband, all lived in this same forest. These beloveds died here. Is it any wonder that I wish to provide a space so that I and anyone else I know and love could walk on here? feed the trees and join the stars. To me, green burial is an act of love for people and planet, which provides a sustainable profit for both in partnership. So in Dr. Billy Campbell's video, Saving 1 Million Acres for 2000 Years, there's a TED talk that I encourage anyone who stewards property with a conservation easement to consider watching. It's about 10 minutes. And this founder of Ramsey Creek Conservation Burial in South Carolina discusses the sustainable land management uh, practices of conservation burial in this video. He talks about how people wish to be remembered and how landowners can generate ongoing sustainable income rather than passive or active loss or a one-time gain by developing conservation burial grounds. Conservation burial falls right in line with John Elkington's triple bottom line that serves people, generates profit, but enhances the quality of life on this planet. The triple bottom line is discussed in great green in great detail in the Green Cemetery Operators Master Class, which I was 
privileged to take this winter. When watching Dr. Campbell's video, a quote stands out and it's this, and I think about my great grandparents as well as my maternal grandfather and the feeling most people have captured when privileged enough to experience the forested areas in Northern Vandenberg County. The main point he says, is that it's not so much about saving the land as it is connecting human communities to the natural communities that we depend on so much, right? So these bonds could last for 2000 years. And I envision a memorial forest where people can come and heal and be with their loved ones and they can wear jeans and t-shirts or suits and ties or whatever they feel like, like being in adjacent meadows, and the funding of care for this memorial forest over time and over generations. I see people walking the paths. There's a great potential for both the land and for stewards of green land and perpetuity. And green burial and conservation burial, I do believe is the wave of the future. Beyond the financial, what does conservation burial do for people in the community? The intimacy and family participation, which is encouraged during these services, cannot be compared to conventional parlor funeral services. Families are encouraged to reclaim their own dead insofar as they are comfortable and to care for them insofar as they are comfortable. Activities that often take place on properties where conservation burials occur include hiking, picnicking, trail riding, goat yoga, cow cuddling, <laughs> support group retreats, butterfly releases, native plant propagation, naturalist classes, wildlife rehabilitation, and much more. And this can connect people with the land in a way like no other. So I'm in the developmental phase of this idea where I have an advisory board ready to plan a conservation burial ground somewhere in our local area. And the forest where I belong with my husband one day and my family forest is, as well as many others to me, worth preserving because I wanna be alone. I wanna join the trees via the mycelium network, the underground cell network of any forest family. And by releasing my control to decay, my atoms will eventually return to the stars. And I really can't just do that effectively from a concrete vault. Yep. In closing, there are some words by um, Donnell Dries that I would like to read. She did a very good piece on this. She was a classmate of mine in the Green uh, Cemeterians Masterclass. The soft goodbye. There are some times where I feel I'm floating, not connected to any kind of where, not grounded or rooted or having a sense of belonging. In conversation, I may identify my childhood home more by what it is near rather than what it is. I may say it's about half hour north of Harrisburg or just east of State College. Although the actual borough seems a thousand miles away when I was a child, in relation to the neighboring towns, we spent many nameless we lived in the nameless in between in the middle of nowhere in a haze of hills. I spent my days wandering fields and looking up into the ceilings of trees. I marked time through the color phases of the maple leaves until they fell away. I grew up in the presence of corn and of the dead. And near my house, there were small cemeteries that any traveler heading east would need to pass before dropping down a steep hill that landed in the small town next door with a curious name. Nothing about my life seemed free to me back then. Rather than being afraid of ghosts, I called to them. My love for cemeteries followed throughout my life. And I've seen family graveyards during an autumn geocaching, 
I've studied sunken gentle mounds marked by odd-shaped stones and weather-worn initials etched by hand. There was nothing else except woods, no house, no road, only the rough trail that led me there and the geocache box filled with rusted little trinkets. I want a soft goodbye. I don't want to be lowered in the hard cement vault that separates me from my biological ability to support the earth after my spirit has left my body. I want to be wrapped in soft, clean cotton, a blanket or shroud, and lowered into a bed of biomass made of rose petals, wildflowers, and evergreen boughs that will accelerate my unembalmed body's melt back into the biome. I want to be grounded and rooted. I want to become dirt. I want to be loam. I want to be soft. I also want to be useful. Down within the dark earthen network of roots, I want my molecules, soft tissues, skin, and bones, my mouth, my hands, and all that has enabled me to carry and express myself as human, to be broken down by cadaver insects, microbes, and mushrooms, spores to support the enduring work of the soil. I want my body and my bio biological signature to be a player in this creative and regenerative process. It is one last offering after a lifetime of consumption. And then eventually we are re-released to the atmosphere among the stars. And that's how I want to be celebrated and remembered. And I th can't think of any more sacred work than being a keeper of the stories of these people as they go on. So that's what inspires me. That's what matters most to me. And I hope that um, you are able to spread the word about not only this work, but about you know, people being more comfortable discussing what matters most to them and getting prepared for a time that they may not hang around for. I'm sure that they won't, <laughs> but um, a time that that can see their stories written the way they would like to be written in the way that they'd like to be remembered and rejoin the network of life. And that's how we live on. Um. I think it's important to have these talks, important to have these talks with professionals, important to have these talks with our families. And again, you know, I, I just want to help normalize it. And I'm so excited for your upcoming project. I'm excited to be a part of that project. And I can't thank you enough for just being an inspiration. And like I said, you are just a total Renaissance woman to me. And I look up to you and the things that you're doing as we go through this journey of life and we go through this journey of death. Um, you are amazing. And I appreciate you coming on to talk to us today. And I appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. Uh, we do open it up for questions. Um, if anybody has any questions and wants more information, then I'll just reach back out to Molly and we can, we can circle around on that. So Molly, thank you again for everything. Appreciate you and you are the bestest, my dear.